from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to a special Sunday night edition of Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, if you're listening to us live on 1200 WAI, uh, thank you for joining us on a Sunday evening here on Final Four Weekend in San Antonio. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes Podcasts or Pocket Casts or your favorite uh, streaming service on the internet afterwards, thank you for uh, tuning into this archive and replay. I'm joined this week uh, for a second time by Debbie Fitzenmeyer. Debbie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, and so for uh, those that um, did not hear the last episode with Debbie, I don't know who she is. Uh, so uh, she started Youth Code Jam here, and we have her back on the program after a $50,000 win at Philanthropitch here. What an amazing night that was. Yeah, so can you, uh, just as an uh, audience here, Explain to them Philanthro Pitch and what was this whole experience they're going through that to start off with. And we'll dive into Youth Code Jam next. Sure. Philanthro Pitch was an amazing experience. Of course, it started out of Austin with these amazing folks, Dan and Lisa Graham, um, as a means of creating um, sustainable nonprofits, funding st- sustainable nonprofits. So it runs a lot like Shark Tank, but for nonprofits. So we went through an application process and um, an interview process and then had to put together what most startups would have to do, which is a pitch deck. And we had three minutes on stage before an entire audience at the Tobin Center, because that's not intimidating at all, (laughs) to share our story um, and seek some funding to scale our programs, but with revenue models that make it possible to build um, not just sustainable nonprofits, but reduce the cost of delivery of services, um, which is a, a smart way of building a nonprofit, I think. And um, so it was an incredible experience. And the audience and companies like Jungle Disc were so generous with us that night. Um, it was quite a win. Yeah, you uh, you had a great night there. It came out with uh, fifty thousand dollars. They uh, the overall event awarded uh, well over a hundred thousand dollars. But I think uh, Youth Code Jam was the the number one uh, winner at the uh, philanthropy pitch that evening. Uh, just as folks may go on Shark Tank and they may fund multiple deals, uh, they Youth Code Jam uh, great. But everyone that uh, made it through there to the finals uh, went away with. A check that evening. Some so everybody went away with something, and I'm, I'm. It was really neat to be able to meet the other executive directors and founders of the nonprofits that were that shared the stage with me because um, they all are doing such important work, and they all did a great job representing their organizations. and And it was really fun to be a part of that. I know a couple of us had conversations about potential collaborations down the road, and so. Um, it was just, it was a really humbling night to see the support um, coming from the audience and from uh, the companies there and from the judges for the really important work that all of these nonprofits are doing in our community. Yeah, because none of the judges were intimidating either. Not at all. No. <laughs> so uh, as, as you, you went through the, uh, that philanthro pitch uh, there, and took you three minutes to do your pitch on on stage. Let's go ahead and give folks, this is a good way to give them an update on Youth Code Jam, or if this is the first time they've heard about Youth Code Jam, 
uh, go ahead and tell the story there that uh, helped you get the the fifty thousand dollars that night. So, what is Youth Code Jam, and where are you headed from here? <laughs> you want me to remember my three minute pitch? I can uh, barely get through it that night. Yeah. <laughs> I was on autopilot at that point. Um, you know, I started Youth Code Jam because my son wanted to learn how to code. He wrote his first computer program. Um, it was probably ten years ago. Um, and it was a really fun program, so it popped up on the screen, what's your name? And I typed in my name, Debbie, um, and a screen popped back up that said, hello, Debbie. And then he handed the computer to his sister, and she typed in her name, Sonia, and a screen popped up that said, hello, stupid. And he thought he was really clever. <laughs> coding for a 10-year-old right there. Coding for a 10-year-old, yeah. Um, I thought he was really devious, but I also realized that coding gave him um, a method of self-expression, a way to... Um, create something from nothing. And um, at that point, I started making the connection to jobs. Um, as you may know, computing is now the number one source of all new wages in the United States. Uh, but for every, just in San Antonio, for every 10 jobs in IT that are posted, there's only one qualified candidate. Um, and so when I went to look for something for him to do to learn how to code, I couldn't find anything but a summer camp that cost $800 a week. Um, and, and I think that the moment hit me that I realized that's just not fair. Um, this type of literacy for the 21st century should not be privileged information. Um, everybody has the right to learn how to code and everybody should have access to learn to code, but it's just not a reality yet. And so that's the space that we started working in. Um, and we hosted our first Youth Code Jam event um, in 2012. And we had a wait list. And, so uh, how we, big was the 2012 event? <laughs> we had uh, 40 kids and 40 parents and 10 volunteers. There you go. Okay, so, so a li little bit less than 100 people there in total. Right. And, and stay with us. The reason why I ask that is as Debbie continues to tell the story here. <laughs> so fast forward now. The really cool thing about Youth Code Jam. So it's a, it's a hands-on way for parents, volunteers, and kids to engage together and learn and grow with code um, in an environment that's station-based um, with a variety of coding languages at a variety of levels. And so if you fast forward, we doubled in size and doubled in size and doubled in size. And now we run the state's largest youth coding event. We think it's the only one of its kind um, in the country. If you're running a youth coding event out there, that you're aware of that's bigger than the number she's going to say here in a minute, please contact us on CyberTalk Radio because Debbie would love to meet your executive director and figure out how to collaborate. I would absolutely love to do that. So the piece that differentiates us, right, is that parent involvement. So kids don't come to Youth Code Jam. We know there are, there are larger events in the state where kids come, not in the state, but in the country. There's one in New yeah. York and one in California where kids come and they can learn to code and like a day-long kind of hackathon type event. Um, but nobody brings together the kids and the parents along with the, the 150 corporate volunteers that we have. So um, last year we had 600 kids and parents and 150 volunteers. So we've just grown exponentially year over year over year. Um, and I think it's because it works. It works because kids, it's fun works because it's fun and coding is fun right because coding yeah. is all about solving problems and and creating um, new things that didn't previously exist so we get kids excited about code we build their confidence in their skills and then we really work to inspire them to imagine themselves in the jobs of the future 
Um, and we've had success in that area. You know, um, when our kids, when kids walk out of our, our big community-wide events, um, they tell us that they've, they've had fun, that they learned, um, and that they're interested, most importantly, that they're interested in continuing to learn to code. And when we ask parents six months later, three out of four parents tell us that their child still has an increased interest in learning how to code. And that skill set is what's going to get them a job, whether it's in computer science or in some other field. Um, coding is just a basic literacy these days. Yeah, and everything is now um, connected to the Internet in some way. Uh, we talk about the Internet of Things. Some folks have started calling it the Internet of Everything because, I mean, that's where it's headed. Uh, and being able to um, just use a search engine to do research. And if you're just searching there and you think about that search engine box, you're putting in regular English words, but you're trying different phrases, you're testing different things. It's effectively you're trying to program the search engine to give you the answer back that you want. It's not a really uh, great programming language. Maybe it's <laughs> it's amazing. Maybe it's not. As a former programmer myself, I like things a little more discreet and specific. Um, but for regular users, being able just to put in a f bunch of English words and maybe get back what you're looking for is is a really great thing. And uh, uh, for those that are really intimidated by computer programming, if you can speak a little bit of a foreign language, most of us were required to take at least a second language in high school for a while. Um, that's all computer programming is. It's just learning to talk to a computer in a language the computer understands. And you just need to have correct grammar. If not, the computers aren't that smart yet. Maybe they're getting there over time. But they'll just reply back to you with syntax error line 12. And whereas <laughs> if you're having a conversation with a person and you used incorrect grammar, they're going to understand what you meant and just keep continue the conversation in most cases. Or they might ask you to clarify. But if you're having a talk with a person, they're not just going to say syntax error in your third sentence. I would venture to say there's one other element to that that even precedes the actual code, and that's the computational thinking that goes into um, writing code, right? So yeah. the computational thinking piece, being able to take a big problem, break it down into its smaller parts, find discrete solutions, and then create essentially a recipe to get to what you want it to do, right? That level of, of thinking and problem solving is useful in any field. Um, and it precedes the ability to learn how to code, I think. I mean, you can learn how to code, but you still have to understand the logic behind it, right? So the great thing is there's so many tools now for young kids all the way up through adults to really learn how to break down that logic and how to start to think computationally and how to start early coding, um, even without having to worry about the syntax. Eventually, you'll have to get to text-based coding and syntax, but with, with block-based programming nowadays, it becomes very simple. I know from my perspective, I love PlayCodeMonkey, PlayCodeMonkey.com. Um, it's designed for kids, but it's really fun for me, and it's really simple to use, and it's engaging because they, they want, we want to get people excited about this. The key is not just knowing how a computer works, but how to make it work for you. Yeah. In the same way we make a toaster work. It's a little easier to work a toaster, but honestly, some appliances, it's not easier to work some appliances. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm more comfortable changing the clock on my computer than I am on my, my radio that I have in the kitchen. Sometimes it's really hard. <laughs> so uh, for those listening, now there, uh, if we have some out there in the audience that are excited about all this and say that they wanted to 
go to Youth Code Jam, maybe they are technical in our audience, they want to volunteer at one, where do they go to learn more about this and what events are coming up here uh, throughout the, the summer or through the end of summer? Right. So the really cool thing about Youth Code Jam is we have a lot of input from parents. We're very much a startup. So we put something out there, see what happens, take, take information back, feedback loop, um, iterate based on what parents are telling us and what, what our volunteers are telling us and what kids are telling us. And what we've learned over time is that there's, there still aren't enough opportunities for kids to learn um, how to code. We're making big progress in that area, but I want to say the latest data was that between only between 3 and 8% of high school students have even completed a computer science class. So we still have a long way to go, and there are a lot of barriers to overcome. Um, and so we've expanded beyond just our one family coding event um, that happens in September every year. That's coming up September 29th this year. And um, when, when does registration open for that? Registration will open for that in July. July. So it's coming up. But we have another, we expanded to create another event. This one will be on May 19th. It is a low sensory jam, unique for kids with high functioning autism and Asperger's sensory processing challenges. Um, and it's a low sensory jam. It's held at the library on May 19th. Um, exact same structure, station based learning, but at a smaller scale without a lot of noise and activity um, because there is, seems to be this connection um, between individuals who, neurodiverse individuals and this logic-based skill. Their brains just work really well in that environment yeah. and it opens up a world of opportunities for them to move into. So that'll happen on May 19th and registration for that is already open. Um, and then uh, we have summer camps coming all, all uh, summer long. We've got tons of camps uh, this year. Everything for, from second grade all the way up through high school. Um, at the second grade level, we do things. We, it's fun with code, right? We just have fun experiences. There's, we explore a lot of sort of unplugged activities. You don't have to learn coding necessarily on a computer to start we do a lot of sort of that computational thinking yeah, process. logic and critical thinking yeah offline right so we have a lot of fun with that and then we're using block-based coding through scratch junior or with integration um, of hardware and software like um, finch robots we love our micro bit we love micro bits these days um, and the kids really love micro bits. In fact, we were at the Maker Fair. We will do micro bits as well at the upper elementary school level. And micro bits are these um, uh, little micro controllers um, with LED lights and sensors. And we build little pets out of like Tamagotchis. Remember Tamagotchis? Yes. We build those out of micro bits. And they're really inexpensive, like 15 bucks a piece. You can buy them online. Um, and they, um, they link physical computing with really abstract concepts. Um, we've got cybersecurity camp coming up again this year. We, uh, that's being taught by Ayad Barsam, who's the graduate program director at St. Mary's University. We're really excited about that. Um, we have you, camps yeah. just for girls. Yeah, a, a shameless plug for CyberTalk Radio. If you wanted to hear more from Dr. Barsoom, we had him on CyberTalk Radio, so you can learn all about the programs uh, over at the university there. If you uh, And then also learn from what he's going to be able to teach your kids at a summer camp. Yeah, amazing. He's really great to work with. Um, and camps for girls and camps on game design. So we have a lot of options for all ages this summer coming up. 
And then, of course, we do mini jams, just sort of pop-up jams out in the community. Um, and you can look at our website at youthcodejam.org and see sort of what's coming up and what's next. And registration links are all there. Yeah. So now with your, your newfound $50,000 of riches from uh, Philanthropitch, are there any new programs coming out with that? Or does this just make it more sustainable into the future? How are you, you guys going to allocate those new dollars? So those dollars are going to be used to actually scale jams across the state. We're really excited about that. In fact, um, we've just started on a, we're calling it a Planet Jam Super Tour. And we're going to all of the ES, not all of, 10 of the ESC regions in the state of Texas and talking with teachers um, and counselors and specialists within the school system on how to run their own sort of family events at their schools around coding, introducing them to some activities that they can have and providing them with essentially all of the resources that we've collected over these last six years so that they can run their own jams in their own communities. And in fact, um, we, we just hosted, this is a big deal. Earlier in the year, we hosted in collaboration with Coding for TX, we hosted a Youth Code Jam ATX up in Austin. They saw what we were doing here in San Antonio and wanted to duplicate it up in Austin. So that was a really exciting moment for us yes. to hold our first Youth Code Jam outside of San Antonio. Um, and so uh, the, the funding from Philanthropitch will really be used to scale in, in three different models. The one is kind of the, the do-it-yourself model, free access to resources um, that teachers and community members, nonprofits can utilize our resources for free and host their own jams. Um, we have another model that's a collaborative model. That's what we did with Coding for TX out of Austin, um, where we collaborated with them. We provided staff mentorship and additional materials and marketing collateral and things like that to run their own jams in their local communities with their base of volunteers. And then we have a turnkey model, um, which we piloted here at... Um, uh, community colleges here in San Antonio where you tell us what you want and we'll make it happen, right? So we'll come in and we'll create your jam for you. So those were kind of the three revenue models that we just, well, really only two of them are revenue models. <laughs> One's a freebie, premium. Yeah. Um, but, but the three models that we talked about at Philanthropitch, and that's really what we're looking at doing is building the online foundation so that we can scale very quickly and efficiently to take what we've learned in San Antonio um, and have proven with outcomes, like measurable outcomes, the impact that we have and replicate that across the state and maybe even beyond. Yeah, so if uh, you've just joined us on 1200 WAI, I'm joined this week by Debbie Fitzmeyer, the Executive Director of Youth Code Jam. Uh, she's talking all about the programs coming up this summer and her recent win at $50,000 at the Philanthro Pitch at hosted at the Tobin Center here in uh, downtown San Antonio. Uh, their mission is to teach coding uh, to all kids everywhere. Uh, it's it's going to be as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, it was back when uh, we moved into this last era of jobs. Uh, if you wanted to learn more, her website, youthcodejam.org. Uh, you can also listen to the rebroadcast or replay of this uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. It'll be uh, up online on Tuesday, April the 2nd. Uh, we post all of our episodes the Tuesday following uh, our weekend airing. 
Um, and you can listen to that past episode uh, with uh, Dr. Barsoom um, to learn more about some of the college-level master's uh, program educational opportunities here in the San Antonio area. Uh, and it's uh, even if you're not here, you should consider coming here for a cybersecurity education uh, between the program there and hands-on uh, hardcore technical or um, some of the information sharing and other business programs at UTSA that are ranked uh, number one in the nation. Uh, you can uh, get a great cybersecurity education in San Antonio, and Debbie mentioned there's 10 jobs uh, for every qualified candidate right now. So if you go get that type of education, there's opportunity for you and your family uh, on into the future. Uh, yeah, I've been looking at the back of your laptop while we've been on the air here, and uh, one of the ones I see is the, the CS for All uh, Teachers uh, sticker on the back of your laptop. This is one you'd said, and it makes me sad every time I hear it still, is that 3 to 8% of kids in high school have had the opportunity to um, take a computer science or computer programming class. Um, they're just not getting offered. Um, so supporting programs like CS for All Teachers, I'm going to give a plug to your, your laptop sticker here. Um, help that program out, support that program, um, talk to your congressman or a, a congresswoman about it, to talk to your senators, uh, help push that program to get it to where schools have funding for computer science for teachers. If you wanted to learn some about that program as well, we had on uh, Congressman Will Hurd on the program here who sponsored uh, that to help get 40 uh, teachers across his district here in Texas, at, down at the middle school level even, to start exposing it there because kids really start to pick uh, things that they're interested in at that middle school level. So if they don't get exposure to it until their junior or senior year of high school and it's an elective, kids aren't necessarily going to opt into it at that point, even if it is available on campus. That's a really interesting statement because what we find more and more is middle school is that critical point. Kids equally, boys and girls especially equally, are interested in computer science prior to the point that they reach middle school. And then something happens in middle school and we lose the girls. And that's a real problem because if we want to have really robust companies and a robust workforce, we can't just have 50% of the population working on that. We know that women make an impact in technology. We know that their voice at the table is a critical voice. Um, and we're losing them in huge numbers in, um, in middle school. And so we actually, um, uh, and thank you for mentioning the teacher professional development because it's a huge part of our work as well. Um, as we realized just in the same way that parents are coming to us telling, they, telling us they want more. We were really um, honored to receive a grant from We Teach CS out of Austin to um, train last year, to prepare last year. Um, how many teachers did we have? 19 teachers for, to challenge and pass the CS certification test. This year we have 30 teachers in our cohort. Uh, and we're working with them over the course of the summer to teach them how to introduce code um, and coding concepts into their classrooms and hopefully get certified um, so that they can grow the number of kids in their um, schools who are interested in, in taking computer science and having fun in it. We know that the, the main reason, there are lots of reasons that schools don't offer computer science. Um, a lot of it is because we don't have the teacher base to be able to teach in the schools. And so that parental piece is really important. Parents need to be at the school saying, we want you to teach this, we want you to teach this. And then we'll, I think we'll have more of a, an uplift. You know, ask your school to run an after-school coding club, right? Yeah. Um, 
And, and if they won't do it, then there are certainly resources at home that you can use to teach your kid how to code. We actually have them all listed on our website as well. But getting it into the schools is, is going to be in the same way that math in the, what, early 1900s was privileged information. You had to pay for your kid to learn math. Can you even imagine that now? And yeah. I think, you know, I think 20, 30, 40 years down the road, we're going to look at computing in the same way we look at math now. Oh, well, why wouldn't we have taught that in the schools? It's a critical skill. Yeah. So we're uh, sneaking up here on a bottom of the hour break for a news traffic and weather update. When we get back from that break, uh, Debbie and I are going to have a, a conversation uh, going into uh, some of this just digital equity continuing along there. Uh, we're also going to tell uh, some stories about uh, some of the lives that have been touched by Youth Code Jam uh, and other early access to computer programming. Uh, might ask Debbie to talk a little bit more about where her son is at these days. I'm looking at another one of those laptop stickers, but uh, <laughs> yeah, his opportunity to get uh, uh, attached to coding has worked out pretty well for him so far. Uh, and there's a a lot more we're going to discuss, but uh, we will be back here on CyberTalk Radio uh, with you in just a moment. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by Debbie Fitzenmeyer, the Executive Director of Youth Code Jam. If you're just joining us after the break, uh, you can listen to the first segment of the, where we talked all about Youth Code Jam, her recent win at Philanthropitch, uh, and some of the background on the importance of youth coding education for this next generation. Uh, that rebroadcast is available uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com as well as on iTunes podcasts uh, or your favorite podcasting service on your Android devices. Uh, so, Debbie, again, thank you for uh, joining us and uh, being a, a repeat guest here on the program. It's uh, great to see as a, a nonprofit startup, uh, you've got the growth trajectory that uh, all for-profit startups really want to have. It's where you've been able to double in size year over year here for uh, the last uh, handful of years. And uh, it's wonderful to see that and to see uh, more kids getting out there and, and learning uh, about programming. Uh, and you're starting even now to help some of the teachers. You said 19 teachers one year, maybe 30 this next. So almost doubling year over year growth rate. We'll take a 50% plus growth rate. That's still a uh, startups are really happy with that one as well. So <laughs> well, we wouldn't be able to do it without the amazing support of this community that comes from our volunteers um, which are folks like you and your team that come out and, and work with our kids um, and teach them the skill sets that you um, hold dear and know are important in the marketplace, um, as well as companies that um, financially support us, like you, like Jungle Disk, um, and Google Fiber and Rackspace and the 8020 Foundation, um, and all of those amazing organizations that, that provide their funding that make it possible for us to scale like that. We're really... Really blessed and humbled in that regard. 
Yeah, so if, if you have a venue where two or 3,000 people could attend a coding event and you're thinking, maybe not this fall, but maybe the fall of, of 2019 or 2020, Debbie could use your venue. Uh, she would love to fill it up full of a bunch of parents and teachers and volunteers and kids all learning about coding uh, at the end of summer because uh, you may be outgrowing your existing one here pretty soon. To to do that, we need the, we need more volunteers as well. It's not just about the space. space okay. It's about um, at our at our at our jam events, right? Um, our ratio is about three participants to every one volunteer. So as we scale, um, that's why we ha- we use all 150 of those volunteers at that one event. <laughs> they yeah. all come. And so it's really fun. It's a fun way for companies to get involved because you can volunteer as a group and you can bring your programmers who who may or may not want to get out of the office to participate in, you know, stuffing food bags, which is important work, or building a house, which is important work. But this is an area that's near and dear to their hearts, um, and they can show up. They don't have to do a lot of prep work because they already know the material, um, and they can work with kids. I'll never forget, I think it was in year two, I had a volunteer come up for me from a company. They come as a team, run a station, bring their, their staff to volunteer and this programmer came up to me with this incredulous look on his face and he said I just taught a kid how to code like really I just taught a kid how to I just taught a kid how to code and how to code and he just kept repeating it over and over you could tell he was so excited about the work that he was doing there as a volunteer and that was that was really heartening for me yeah great team building activity and and we have awesome t-shirts I'm just saying everyone likes a good (laughs) t-shirt (laughs) <laughs> so if you would like to volunteer here, uh, even at the end of this summer here for the September Big Jam this year. Yes, absolutely. You can go All to youthcodejam.org. Youthcodejam.org and just sign up. There's a little thing that says, I want to volunteer, and you can just click on it. It adds you to our email list, and as we open up our volunteer registration for each activity, we send out those emails, and then you can just sign up. Or alternately, you can just give me a call. Um, the number and the email address are on the website and we can talk about, you know, what it is that you guys would like to do. So it's great to, to go through. So this program has been around since 2012 was the, f- the first one uh, with a little bit less than 100 people at it. And so uh, over now you've got six years of, of history and some stories there. And we had, we'd promised the folks that stuck with us through the break we would tell at least one story here uh, in the second half of the program. So uh, do you have one that's popping to the top of your mind? So many stories. <laughs> I think they're, uh, th- I'm going to tell two. Bonus, you get B- one and one bonus. Bonus story, perfect. <laughs> um, you know, the one that pops to mind is that, you know, on in, in May 19th, we'll hold our low sensory jam at the library. Uh, last year, we had about 40 kids there and their parents and maybe 30 volunteers. So it was almost one-on-one. And I'll never forget watching, uh, the parents were sort of collecting in the back and we were sort of having a conversation and I don't know what caught my eye and I turned around and I saw this, this young man, you know, he's, I think he's probably 12 years old. He's come to our low sensory events before. He was, he was on the ground with our Finch robots, which are super fun block-based programming that scale all the way up into text-based coding. Um, but they take away the build and just focus on the code. So we really enjoy working with those. And he was side by side with another kid. They had started out with parallel play, which is typical with kids on the autism spectrum. But as they continued to um, explore the Finch robots, 
I saw this, this neurodiverse young man look at the kid next to him and say, let's race these. And together they formulated a game where they were racing these Finch robots and they were talking and they were laughing and they were engaging with each other. Now, for a parent of a neurodiverse kid, that's a huge thing because it's almost as if the social anxieties that surround that sort of dissipated. I like to call it their island of competence, right? When a kid gets on their island of competence, a lot of the challenges that we see in the home sort of go away. And when we can keep their kids on the island of competence, then they're able to engage and explore and learn and grow. And it was really exciting to see that this child had found his island of competence in coding. And, you know, you fast forward that to when he's 18 and looking at college. And then when he's, you know, 20 and, and going out into the workforce and seeking a job from that island of competence with that skill set that's in such high demand. That's a really exciting moment for me. And it really sort of defines how we look at the work that we do. Um, so that story really stands out in my mind in terms of what we're trying to do one kid at a time. Um, another story would be um, uh, another. We have we have several kids. So about thirty percent of our volunteer force um, are high school kids and college kids. And we've had one student who came our very first year, our very first code jam. He was seven years old and came back every year, over year, over year, over year. But every year, he took on a different role. So the first three years, he came and he participated. But as his skills grew, he realized that he was ready to volunteer and give back. And so he started um, volunteering in future years. He would show up and he would, he would uh, work as a volunteer mentor for other kids. So you can imagine this 10-year-old <laughs> <laughs> with his unbelievable skill set, mentoring other kids. That, and that peer-to-peer -peer and near-peer mentoring piece is really powerful. Um, and last year, he actually came back and ran a station on his own. So that was being able to see the kids as they move from participant to volunteer into leadership, right? Into essentially building a portfolio of work that then will go on their resumes that will help them in future, uh, succeed in future opportunities. That's really exciting for us. And we have that opportunity now that we've been around a little bit longer. Yeah, so as, as we think about the access uh, to these things for all the kids out there, so back when I've got gray hair in my beard, for those of you who can't see this on the radio, you can't see in our black and white photos that we put up online. See, I don't see any gray. I don't know yeah. what you're talking so about. And back in when I was in high school, I worked a summer job the entire summer, and I saved that whole thing up so I could buy a computer that was good enough to do programming on. Like it took, I worked forty hours plus a week the whole summer to be able to buy just a computer tower. This wasn't a laptop. This wasn't portable. This wasn't anything else. This was a, a tower computer uh, that sat on a desk. Um, I had a monitor already, but this like my the actual computer I had was not really good enough for anything above some really, really basic programming before I bought this newer one. Uh, now, uh, Debbie, from the programming things that the kids are using there, you said one kit costs $15 to get started. What type of computer do they need to, to be able to do these sorts of things to hook up to it? Honestly, the way things are moving, you can just have a tablet now. There are things you can do on a tablet like Scratch Junior. 
that you can't even do on a laptop. So the tablets are helpful. Um, A laptop, even a very basic laptop, because a lot of it is um, online. So as long as you have Wi-Fi access, which is the tipping point for a lot of kids, right? We have a lot of kids have access to technology, even cell phones. Now you can do some limited coding on cell phones. Not a lot. Um, But the, the access to the Internet um, it's a huge barrier for people, and it's a real challenge. So one of the things we focus on the do- is the democratization of codes. All of our coding jam, all of our code jams are free of charge, and we do that <coughs> because we don't want cost to be a barrier. In fact, even at our summer camps, about fifty percent of our kids receive a scholarship at some level, anywhere from a full scholarship to fifty or hundred dollars, depending on family circumstances, to attend our camps. We n- we never turn somebody away because of an ability to pay. That's one of the benefits of being a nonprofit, right? So the, the really critical piece comes in making sure that these opportunities are available for all children. Right now in San Antonio, about one out of every four individuals does not have internet access. Well, it's going to be really hard to code if you don't have internet access. Yes, you can get to the library. If you can get to the library, um, you can yeah. use library comp- or you can go to bibliotech and learn at bibliotech. Yeah. Um, and use their their laptops and their computers. So th- there are some resources available, but it's not easily accessible. And that's a real challenge. And being able to work with other individuals who have this interest in digital equity, in really making sure that all kids have the opportunity to learn this lifelong literacy is a really important work that we're, that we're trying to do. Yeah, and for those of you listening on your your iPhone or you're listening on the YouTube streaming over the internet um, what Debbie's talking about there on the it, it just may I'm gonna say it a second time real slow one in four households in Bear County don't have access to the internet and we're a major metropolitan area so you get outside of the big cities and there's the a gap now between those who have access to the next generation of knowledge and there are those that are not getting access to that information and we're not going to be able to fill the jobs and grow the economy and all of the things that we all want to do to increase prosperity without getting everybody online and without getting everyone equal access to uh, internet technology. Then, and the, the demographic shift, if you live on the north side of San Antonio, you're like, what do you mean they don't have internet access? Everybody should be able to have that at their house. It's not even the lack of willingness to pay. It's just not actually available. You can get dial-up. You might be able to get some really low-speed DSL, uh, but there's not high-speed gigafiber internet or even 10 or 20 megabit internet available to many of the zip codes in in the San Antonio area. I mean, there's somewhere uh, more than half of the houses in a, a given zip code do not have the access to even get high-speed internet even if they were going to be able to pay for it i think it's important to remember that we live in the most economically segregated city in the country um so it is it is ubiquitous across but there's still a very large portion of our geography that really doesn't have access because it's not available but also because they have no way of, of affording it yeah and, and that's the great tragedy. And I think it's why we work so hard on the front lines of the schools, because we know most kids, if not all kids, we hope all kids go to school. Um, 
But and, and in school, they'll have the opportunity to learn school is sort of the great equalizer at some level. But even in San Antonio, our schools are at extreme disadvantages based on their geography. And that makes me very sad. And we want to do everything we can. It's why even in our teacher professional development, we look at where are the Title I schools. And not all Title I schools are in any one particular part of town. We have Title I schools across the city. And so we try to be very geographically blind. But the reality of it is there's still a portion yeah. if you look at a map. Yeah, our, our economic segregation for those uh, outside the San Antonio area, it's not a, a bright line where if you've seen like the movie Eight Mile or some of these things, uh, heard about that where there's one line in town where the things are segregated there. It's more polka dots here. You, you look across San Antonio and there's you look at a specific zip code or a specific area and there's going to be a dramatic difference to the area right next door to it. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth in these pockets all over the whole uh, San Antonio City and Bear County area. So I think anything that we can do to work in this area to when I talk about equity, I'm not just talking about making sure that everybody gets the same thing. It's about making sure that kids have what they need to get to where everybody is has access right yeah. does that make sense it's it's not making sure that everybody gets the same allocation of resources right um but more so looking at how can we provide more resources where they're needed so that they can learn this literacy so that they can go on to jobs so that they can improve their lives and their families' lives and the lives of families of their generations to come you know it's interesting i was overhearing a conversation <laughs> overhearing listening in I was part of the conversation um, of a gentleman who was talking about how he came from um, a, a low-income family learned how to code and now has a much higher paying job than even his parents had and as a result the expectations for his kids have changed and the expectations for their children will change and the expectations for their children will change. And I really see this. I really do believe that this is, this is a way out of systemic poverty because at the moment, we're at this time and place, I don't know if it'll always be that way, this time and place, um, the jobs that exist are high-paying jobs. And that can make a real impact on a whole family unit, not just on an individual. Yeah, I mean, this is the software development is the manufacturing of this next era. So you, we talk about these quote blue collar jobs uh, that transformed during the industrial revolution and built the middle class in America. Software development and using computers are what's going to build the next big wave uh, here in our economy for the next hundred years. And this isn't stuff that you, you have to go get an advanced computer science degree from one of the top 10 universities to be able to do. This is something where there's a huge range of computer programming jobs all the way down to uh, very where you're just taking a manual process today and you're telling a computer how to do these steps in a way that's consistent and repeatable. And that's just learning to speak to the computer in its language. And then all the way through to much more complex problem solving where you're building uh, the way for the computer system to solve problems, not just repeat steps, and then even on to more advanced things. And this is why there's a whole wide range of levels of jobs where you're coming up with the new algorithms. You're not even implementing algorithms. You're designing new ones. And that's at the math and computer science research level. And in fact, they say 60% of the jobs of the future don't even exist today. That's a huge number. 
<laughs> and yeah. the idea that our our kids are going to be the innovators of those 60%, 60% of jobs that don't exist. And the opportunity that lies in that is huge. Yeah, and, and this is one where they haven't even, not only do the jobs don't exist, we haven't really thought of them yet because it's hard for society to grasp the kind of vastness uh, of the changes that are, are coming ahead of us as you look at the number one job in most of the states out there right now is uh, truck driver. Um, so if you look at just from a pure numbers of employment, more people work today as truck drivers than they do in any other uh, job in most of the states across America. Uh, I don't believe that's going to be the same thing 50 years from now. Like the cars, the trucks will be driving themselves. The cars will be driving themselves. You may be working as a truck unloading and loading um, a little bit, maybe not even at that. You may see. You may be sitting at the computer making them move. Yeah. You, have to say, <laughs> you may see trucks driving down the street with a fleet of drones that fly out of the top right. of the roof of the truck and come over and land and drop things off on porches and pick things up from porches. So all of that stuff's going to change. And you're going to think, what are all the new computing jobs as, as you have that one type of change in society? What all sorts of other things pop up because of it? You know, it's really interesting because you said we we can't even imagine it. But here's the beauty of working with kids. Yeah. They do. They can imagine like, everything. They can imagine the most incredible future. And I love that they're they're free. They feel so free in doing that. They're not constrained by the realities of of economics, right? Or even the realities of the physical world. They can just imagine and dream. And when we give them this tool to be able to implement that, that's huge. One of our um, new, pro well, it's a second year program now um, that's growing is our externship program with teachers because we really believe in entrepreneurship as a career track. We should be teaching entrepreneurship as a career track for kids in the same way we teach manufacturing and, and mathematics and computer science even, right? As yeah. career tracks, entrepreneurship is a real career track as well. And we're very excited this year to be um, hosting a dozen teachers, sending them through a startup weekend, 54 hours of creating a company from scratch, um, and then working with them to take that back into their classroom. And um, we're working with the city's Office of Innovation and Geekdom on CivTech SA, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, and, and presenting these sort of city challenges and letting the kids imagine some solutions to those challenges. Uh, I think is going to be a really exciting opportunity for the kids and it's going to really allow us to see how these kids can in fact imagine a very different future. Yeah. Now, is a, the CivTech SA is great stuff. We uh, had on Steve Young as well from VIA who they're doing a, uh, an annual now uh, hackathon uh, startup kind of weekend event to come up with new ideas uh, to transform what they're doing with public transit here in San Antonio from a software and app perspective. So it's good to see the, the city uh, getting involved in these things, uh, the county as well as just uh, looking to um, now have more technology contracts um, where they've added a local and entrepreneurial focus to not just award to large national contractors anymore to continue to foster and develop and create opportunities for kids in the and business owners in the San Antonio area and the Bear County area that are uh, learning these skills uh, and to hopefully keep this flywheel turning here. Yeah, it's exciting to me to see organizations like the city and the county and companies even starting to realize that, yes, we have to get 
we have to do something on the short tail, right? We've got to get people into jobs. So we have to work in that area. But I'm seeing this more and more of a shift into, okay, we also have to build out. We have to build that down to the long tail. Um, I, I think we were talking before the break that middle school seems to be that key point. Um, and at the age of 12, boys and girls have the same interest in computer science. But between 12 and 14, something happens. And 47% of the boys say that they do. And only 5 to 8% of the girls say that they're still interested in computer science. And so it's exciting to me to see companies and organizations and city and the county start to look back in time to the younger kids and willing to invest in moving them up um, through the system so that we're not losing them right at that critical point. Yeah, no, it's it's huge because you, you get up to like computer science uh, degree holders and I'm not certain on the stats here, but I'm going to go on the air and say less than 10% of the computer science graduates in America are female at this point in time. It's interesting because the numbers are actually the, the numbers going into college are higher, but the numbers graduating out are lower than they were in the 80s Yeah, and, of women. And now more than 50% of the college graduates coming out in America, though, are female. So you have more women graduating from college than men, but you have a less in the computer science. It's now gone the other direction. More men graduating from computer science now than even back in the 80s. Uh, so this is, is one where if that doesn't change, we're going to have a continual skills and job shortage uh, here across America. So one of the if you've got any uh, if you're on a college admissions board or you're on a regional accrediting board uh, listening or if you're at a college professor administration, um, I would ask you to uh, allow Python or other computer programming languages to count as your foreign language requirement for admission. So uh, the Texas Department of Education at the, at the high school level now, um, kids could take four years of Python programming in high school and they could meet their high school requirements for graduation. The problem is they're not doing that because they can't get into any university. Even the University of Texas requires you to take a foreign language such as Spanish, German, French, all the traditional foreign languages. So college admission boards, college regional accrediting, please help us get this fixed so that high schools can enroll everybody in four years of a computer programming language, Java, Python, whatever it is, instead of four years of Spanish, French, or German. Second that. <laughs> yes. So uh, any other parting thoughts here for our audience, Debbie? Uh, make sure they go to youthcodejam.org, volunteer to get involved, sign your kids up for September. Uh, what else? I think, I think right now what's really on my heart is just a big thank you. A thank you to the organizations, the companies, the city, the county, the volunteers, the parents, the kids who have embraced the work that we're doing and are moving it forward in this community and beyond. Well, thank you again for joining us. Uh, we wish you all the luck, and I'm sure some of the folks here in the audience will see you and uh, the rest of the Youth Code Jam team this summer or this September at the, the big annual jam. Hope so. We'll look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you for having us.